How many of you watched the Olympics? Did you watch? We, because we were off, we ended up watching a lot more Olympics than I think we normally would have watched. And my wife made this comment, she, she made this observation that, that we, we find ourselves all of a sudden caring about sports that we'd never heard of. Anyone feel the same way? Like, like sports you'd never watched, never seen in your life, and all of a sudden you're like rooting for people in a sport that you completely don't understand. That was, that was me like a couple of times. Like rugby, I, I, I have to confess, I don't really know rugby, and so I'm watching rugby, and I'm like, this is exciting, something's happening, but I don't know what it is, but go team, go, right? And we find ourselves caring about things that we never really cared about before. But I made this, this observation. There's like, there's like, if you broke the sports in the Olympics down into thirds, there's, there's, a, whole bunch of, there's a whole bunch of random sports. I recognize that. But, but basically, two-thirds of the sports that people compete in the Olympics are soccer and variations of soccer and tennis and variations of tennis. Right? I mean, you've got men's and women's soccer, and a lot of people play that. But then you've got field hockey, which was soccer with sticks, right? Like you're playing soccer, but you're using a stick. You've got water polo, which is basically just swimming soccer. You've got handball, which I had never seen before. Didn't, I didn't know what it was. But handball is basically basketball soccer, right? And, and then the other sports, tennis. So you've got tennis and then all the variations of tennis. Right, so you've got tennis, men's and women's tennis. You've got volleyball, which is basically tennis. And you've got beach and, and, uh, and indoor volleyball, men's and women's. You've got table tennis. And then you have badminton, which is still just tennis. And as my wife said, how is that an Olympic sport? Like, how is this thing you play in the backyard with birdies and, you know, you, you, can, you can do without a whole lot of skill? How does that become an Olympic sport? I don't, I don't quite understand that. I also don't understand how the equestrian competition is in the Olympics. Like, all of the Olympics, all of the other sports, the people are doing the work. But in, in the equestrian competitions, the horse is doing all the work. Now, I know it's challenging to ride a horse, but the truth is the horse is the one that is doing all the work. Only the rider, the rider only has to hang on for dear life. That's all he has to do and not fall off, right? The horse is the one jumping over the hurdles. But I think the horse should get the medal. Right? Or, or at least most of the medal. Or like, like give, the, give the rider like a little tiny baby medal and give the horse the great big medal. So I don't understand that. There's a lot of things I don't understand about the Olympics. I don't understand why they have to spend so much time showing the losers on camera. Because isn't that just heartbreaking? Like, like you've got these people that have spent the last however many years of their lives training and working hard to get to this point. And they get to the Olympics and then it's not even a competition, right? The ones like at the very back of the race, you know, the, like they're a whole lap behind everyone else. And then they, they always show them on the camera and you're just like, your soul is crushed for these, these poor people who are like had all of their hopes and dreams in this one moment. I wish they just wouldn't show it. I mean, I know it gives us perspective on how happy the, the winners are, but I just wish they would leave that part out. Yeah, everyone should get a medal. Well, I don't know that I would go that far. But, but one of the greatest things about the Olympics is when you have unexpected competitors win a race. When they, when they have people that they think are going to win and they get outshone by someone else, like Lydia Jacoby. Did anyone catch that story? The swimmer out of Alaska. I think she was like 17 years old. We, we were watching, watching the coverage of that. She did the women's 100-meter breaststroke, and, uh, and they showed the video of people in Alaska, and they're showing, like, the last, the last lap, and, like, the people are, she's ahead, and, you know, they're just getting excited and getting excited. Like, they're already jumping around like she's going to win, and then she wins, and they just go completely berserk, losing, losing their minds that she won the race. There's some good moments in the Olympics, like when Italy's Tamberi and Barshim of Qatar tied for the gold in men's high jump. Did you guys see that story? I don't know if you saw that, but, but the judge comes up to, comes up to them and, they, and explains what can happen. They said, we can have a jump off and, and see who, who wins the jump off and get the gold, or we can call it a tie and you both get the gold. 
And, and Tamberi from Italy just loses his mind. Like, we both get a gold? We can both get a gold? He just starts jumping around and, and, and going insane. It's an awesome moment. And then they show the runners falling to the ground, celebrating, crying tears of joy. But they never show the horse, you know, like rolling around on the ground, crying tears of joy. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see a horse, you know, like rolling around on the ground, covering its eyes with its paws. I think that would be fun. Of course, there are moments that crush you. There was one diver who just like doing the, the springboard and just something happened and she just ended up just jumping off of the springboard, didn't do any kind of a dive. That was, that was, that was crushing. Or like when runners' feet get all tangled up and they fall down, they trip someone and they can't finish the race. Or that moment that they showed the commentator, Johnny Weir, at the closing ceremonies. I thought we'd actually accidentally switched over to Caesar Flickerman and his coverage of the Hunger Games. It's a crushing moment. Obviously, though, competition is a huge part of the Olympics. You're not just trying to win the gold, but you also, if you can, you want to set an Olympic record. You want your name to go down in the Olympics as the record holder for this sport. And, and maybe you can become the world record holder, right? And there's constant talk through all of the Olympics about who is the fastest woman, right? And they're saying, this is the fastest woman in the world, or this is the fourth fastest woman in the world. But how can they know that for sure? All that they really know is that these women are the fastest in terms of the competitions. But there aren't any timers going when a mom has to run to stop a toddler from wiping a poopy diaper all over the wall. So we don't know just how fast the fastest woman might be. And that should be an Olympic sport. But when the mom wins the gold, instead of falling to the ground to celebrate, her toddler throws a tantrum on the ground on global television. That would be fun to watch. There are basically two kinds of winners when it comes to the Olympics. There's the humble, the one who's crying and weeping. I, I don't deserve this. I didn't think I would be able to, to compete at this kind of a level. This is totally blowing my mind. And then there's the Muhammad Ali type who's like, I'm the greatest of all time. I totally deserve this. Or the goat, which is a word. I mean, I know it's greatest of all time. They call him the goat. Like they were calling Simone Biles the goat, the greatest of all time, which I don't think, I don't think it seems right to call Simone a goat. Like, I'm okay with that term for Tom Brady, but I think we need a more civilized term for great athletes who didn't go to Michigan. Like, we can call people who went to Michigan goats. That joke would have killed in Ohio, but I guess not so much here. <laughs> but right now, I did a little research. The, the longest standing, standing record in the Olympics is 36 years old. So really, Really, we can't say that this person is the greatest of all time. They're the greatest for a time, maybe, maybe the greatest for a generation, but they're not really the greatest of all time because eventually someone's going to come along and break that record. They're going to win more gold medals. They're going to run faster. They're going to do better because Olympic records and world records get broken all the time, right? We hear that every single Olympics. Well, there's this fight to be the best. There's this fight to be the greatest. There's this fight to be on the top of the podium, to stand on the top and get the gold medal. And this actually is something that's been going on throughout all of history. It's not something that has developed since the Olympics. It's been going on for a long time. Even on the night before Jesus was crucified. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. This is right after Jesus had broken the bread and instituted the new covenant, which was a covenant that, by the way, goes, love your neighbor as yourself, or the covenant is, love one another as I have loved you, so also you should love, so also you should love each other. So the disciples thought it was fitting, after that commandment was given, to start fighting for which of them was going to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. 
For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Remember, at the start of the meal, Jesus had just served them by washing their feet. And he was going to serve them by giving his life as a sacrifice. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then in this moment, Jesus turns specifically to Peter, Simon Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Peter replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. But Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw, that, saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but... This is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some of them there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy who hit you. And they said many other things insulting to him. At daybreak, the council of elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. 
And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. And then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, open my heart, open our minds, open my mind to what you have for us this morning. I pray that you would guide my words. I pray that you would help me to say what we need to hear and anything that doesn't need to be said. I pray that you would guide me beyond those words. I pray that you would help us to hear what we need to hear from you this morning so that we can live lives in accordance with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. What was Jesus referring to when he asked, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Does anyone know? What was Jesus referring to when he said, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? It's a callback to something that happened earlier. Yeah, Luke chapter 10, when he sent the 72 out, he told them to go out without purse, bag, or sandals, and they didn't lack anything. Good. Why did Jesus all of a sudden want the disciples to carry swords? Why do you think Jesus all of a sudden wanted the disciples to carry swords? He'd been very peaceful up until this point, and now all of a sudden he's like, get some swords. Why would Jesus change on that? Yeah, he, he knew what they were about to face. What do you think? It seems out of the blue. Any other thoughts? He's showing them what's right and what's wrong at the time. Okay. Showing them right and wrong at the time. Well, this, this was actually to fulfill, a, to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 12, which says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. And that's quoted there in those, in those verses, that he was numbered with the transgressors. It was, it was, it was required, it was important that, that uh, Jesus appear to be a transgressor, even though he wasn't, he wasn't actually trying to start a rebellion, he wasn't trying to lead an army to overthrow the government. Um, in order for him to be convicted or, or tried as a transgressor, he had to have the appearance of, of being a transgressor, and so they brought swords. And so Jesus didn't cut anybody's ear off, but the swords were an important part of them getting, of Jesus getting arrested. Why do you think it was a big deal for the disciples to keep falling asleep while Jesus is out there praying? Elaine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be. Why is it a big deal that the disciples keep falling asleep? Because 
Yeah, that's, that's definitely part of it, right? He said to stay awake, and, and they weren't doing that. Any other thoughts? So here, here are a couple thoughts. First, this was Passover, and it was actually tradition for people to stay up late on the night of Passover and talk about God's redemption. So that was, that's a part of, of tradition, how things worked. And so there should have been, the, the disciples should have been prepared to stay up late if they were ready for a normal Passover celebration, regardless of what was going to happen next. I think there is sorrow that Jesus had just told them a lot of things, even though they didn't quite understand what was going to happen. There was still sorrow about what was happening. I think, I think one of the biggest things, though, is, is the, the temptation uh, that Jesus was talking about. Because the word here, temptation, um, has to do with being tested. And he's praying for them and the testing that was about to come. And he, he wanted, and we know that Jesus was praying from uh, John chapter 17, we know that Jesus was praying for the disciples to, to be able to withstand and endure the testing that was about to come. And so Jesus is going off and praying for them to endure this testing, and then he's coming back and the disciples aren't praying, they're sleeping. They're not praying, and they're the ones that are going to be dealing with a testing as well as Jesus. So Jesus... You know, I had always kind of interpreted this that, that Jesus is getting ready to face the cross. He's explained to his disciples that he has to be handed over and all to death and all of this stuff. And so, you know, it's easy to interpret this and say, well, well Jesus, Jesus is just upset that his, the disciples aren't praying for him right before he goes to the cross. And that's kind of how I always interpreted it. But I think Jesus was was urging them to pray for their own benefit, not for himself. Yes, he was struggling, but he wasn't lecturing the disciples because he wanted them to pray for him. He wanted them to pray so that they could endure the testing that they were all about to face. What do you make of this? Last question for right now. Verse 31, where it says, Simon, Simon... Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. What do you make of that verse? Satan has asked to sift all the disciples. And trying to pick off, pick off the disciples from Jesus? Is Satan asking to test? Yeah. Yeah, and does that remind you of anything? Satan asking to test somebody? Job, Job yeah. Those doing the Bible reading. <clears throat> we just read through Job. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so that, I think, is an interesting, <clears throat> interesting comparison. It's a consistency. It's something that, that points out the consistency of Scripture that, that Satan has to ask permission to, to test or to try God's children, which opens up a can of worms that we're not going to get into. <clears throat> My voice isn't used to talking and singing this much. All right, Peter's denial of Jesus. I want to I want to cover that really quickly. We're going to cruise through a lot of stuff now. The courtyard that that Jesus was in was the courtyard of the high priest. That's what Luca just said. Now, in my mind, when I hear courtyard, I think great big, like a great big courtyard. But it's probably a small courtyard because it was the private residence of the high priest. So. 
So they took Jesus to the private residence of the high priest, and in those days they didn't have great big courtyards. It was probably not even, not even a quarter of the size of this room. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe from the second pillar over to here might be the size of the courtyard. Maybe, maybe smaller, maybe a little bit larger, but probably not very large. And so it's a private residence. It's a private courtyard. So Peter was actually trespassing to be there. He had, he had, broken, he had broken the law to be there. Jesus was also in this courtyard. He wasn't inside one of the homes in this courtyard, but he was outside in the other corner of the courtyard, which means Jesus could hear Peter's three denials. So that means that Jesus probably heard clearly when Peter said, Man, I am not. Because there's an exclamation point. It sounds like there's something intense about what Peter's, Peter's saying. And then the last one, it says vehemently. He, he, said it, he said it angrily. I tell you, I'm not one of them. And then Luke is the one that includes this, that, that says that at that moment, as the rooster crowed, Jesus looked across the courtyard at Peter, made eye contact with him, and then Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. Peter's denial was not something that happened in a vacuum that Jesus heard about later. Peter's denial was something that Jesus saw and experienced firsthand. He saw and experienced at the moment of Jesus' need when he was being tried for crimes that he did not commit, he saw and experienced firsthand his closest or one of the three closest disciples rejecting him and denying him. These verses contain a great contrast that I want to talk about. There's the contrast from verse 24 where, where the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest, who's the greatest disciple. And the disciples in that moment are being driven by personal motivation. They, they have an ambition to be the greatest disciple. They want, uh, still assuming that Jesus is going to rebuild the kingdom, they want a position in the kingdom that gives them the most authority that they can possibly get. So they're arguing about who is the greatest and then contrasting that with Jesus, sweating drops of blood and praying, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus had a personal ambition. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That's what Jesus wanted. That was his personal motivation. But the mission was more important to Jesus. And so he would pray all three times, not my will, but your will be done. This, I believe, is the greatest trial and temptation of Jesus' life. The testing and the tempting in the wilderness is important. It was hard on Jesus, clearly. But I believe, based on what Luke records here, that this is the most strenuous testing that Jesus experienced in his whole life because he was stressed and anxious to the point of sweating drops of blood. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted in those three areas, right? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, like John summarizes in 1 John. And so he was tempted in those three things. And yes, each of those had an inherent disobeying God. But there wasn't a, a trial or a temptation in those that was just a, a, a flat-out Jesus choosing to do his thing over God's thing. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted with the devil's ideas. He was tempted with the devil's strategy and the devil's agenda to try to take care of Jesus. But in the garden, Jesus was tempted with his own idea to rebel against God. He had to fight off his own internal desire and choose God's will over his own. And Jesus, instead of following his personal ambition and his personal motivation, chose the mission instead. 
I don't know about you, I don't know if you've been asking yourself these questions, but I've been asking myself lately, like, what's wrong with our world? Like, what's going on in the world? Why, why is our world seem to be just messed up? Right? And it's not just sports, you know, and I think we actually get it in sports, that there's competition in sports, and that there's this fighting for supremacy in sports, but, but there's this, this personal ambition that seems to have taken over everything. Right? Everything in life has to be the way we want it to be, and if everything in life isn't the way we want it to be, then we actually, we feel oppressed. Like someone, the man, is, is putting his iron thumb on us and keeping us down when things aren't the way we want them to be. As a society, we've come to run everything through the grid of how it makes us feel. And if we don't like the way something makes us feel, well, then that thing must be bad for us. We're constantly elevating ourselves. We're constantly criticizing others. We're judging and condemning others for not living up to our own unwritten, unvoiced expectations that we ourselves fail to live up to on a daily basis. I think we can look around society and say that personal motivation is in the driver's seat. Personal ambition is driving everything that we do. Now, a lot of what I want to talk about is addressing the church at large. I'm not saying that, that I see these huge problems in our church, but I see it in the church. And you're going to hear at the end a dream that I have that where I, I, I dream that our church would become a strategic, a strate become a strategic part of bringing reconciliation amongst the church and between the church and the world. And right now the church is divided amongst itself and the church is divided against the world. We're against people we're not supposed to be against. We're supposed to fight against rulers and principalities of the darkness, not against physical rulers of this world. And yet we've chosen for some reason to, to wage a war against people that we're supposed to be on this, on, either on the side of or to be able to love and bring out out of the darkness in, and into the light. And I really hope our church, the people of 6-8, will become peacemakers and ministers of reconciliation on a great level that we actually start to bring people out of that darkness that divides and into the light of the unity of Jesus Christ. So I want to address some of these things on a, on a big church, global church level, and then get to how we can make a difference at 6-8. This personal ambition, this personal motivation is as true in the church, if not more true in the church. We put ourselves first in most considerations. We expect things to be the way we want them, and if they aren't, then we're going to make a stink about it. We evaluate everything that happens in the church through the grid of how it makes us feel, and if we don't like it, we feel justified in dissenting. We elevate ourselves over others, criticize, judge, condemn one another for not living up to our unwritten, unvoiced expectations, and overlook and justify our own shortcomings. For an organization whose primary foundation is grace, we're not super gracious. We're not gracious with those in, inside the church, and we're much less gracious with those outside the church. The contrast in these verses between Jesus and his disciples, I think, is stark. But I don't think it's as stark as the contrast now between the American Christian church and Jesus. So what do we, what's the difference between missional motivation and personal motivation? Jesus was motivated by the mission more than he was by his own personal agenda. So he would pray, let this cup be taken from me. He clearly did not want to go to the cross. He clearly did not want to deal with the pain of being crucified. He clearly did not want to take the weight of, and the burden of the sin of all of humanity onto himself and be separated from the Father and die a criminal's death. That was a personal motivation, but still, he would pray, not my will, but yours be done. He wasn't willing to sacrifice the mission that he had come to accomplish for his own personal desires. He was motivated by the eternal mission that had been laid out and prophesied for hundreds of years like we just saw. That's what motivated Jesus, the mission. But what's motivating us? What's motivating so many believers in the world today? 
One of the lessons I had to learn when I became a senior pastor was I had to stop fighting for or against decisions that we would make as a church because of how it would affect me or my family. See, it used to be that you know, we would talk about ideas, and when I was a worship pastor on, on the staff at other churches, we would, we would kind of brainstorm and come up with ministries and, 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 uh, and outreaches and things that we wanted to do, and, and I would kind of fight for or against them based on how it would impact my family. Like if it was going to happen on one of, like on the weekend, one of our days off or something, I would fight against it because I didn't want to take time away from my family. I would want to do it on a day that we were already on the clock, but... When I became a senior pastor, I had to learn to make decisions based on whether it was the right thing for the church or not to fulfill our mission, not based on how it affected me or my family. I don't always do that well. I think it's easy for, for me, and I think it's probably easy for most of us to, to find ourselves you know, justifying stances that we take on whether we should or shouldn't do something because subconsciously we're thinking, this is going to me in a way I don't want it to affect me, and so I'm going to say, no, I don't think we should do this. I think we all probably do that. We're all really good justifiers. But I think we have to learn to make decisions based on what's best for the mission, not just what's best for our personal selves. I think right now the church is missing a huge opportunity. This is, where, this, is, this is where it might get a little uncomfortable. As, as a pastor, I've never really talked about politics, and I'm never going to be a political pastor. I'm sorry if that disappoints some of you. But I want to be purple. I want to be, I want to be in the middle. I want to be like Jesus, who when, when they were trying to catch Jesus in, in politics... He found a way to, to, do, to, to do what was right and then at the same time turn the attention towards his mission. Like when they were trying to, trying to catch Jesus about paying taxes and they would say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And they're trying to catch him because, because the Jews didn't think that the Jews should pay taxes to Caesar. They, they thought those should go to the synagogue and to others and that it was un, unjust for, for the Romans to be, be taxing the Jews. And so they wanted Jesus to say, no, you don't have to do that. But, but Jesus, they get it, you know, says, what does he do? He says, bring me a coin. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. And Jesus' reply is, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. He didn't get involved in the politics. He took the political thing that was brought out in front of him, and he turned it to his mission. Give to God what is God's. We've, I've, I've taught and, and, and come to understand that he's talking about what has God's image on it, and that is you and me. So he's saying, give Caesar the money, but give yourself to God. I know this is, this is like, I can feel it in the room just by, just by like, it's, it's one thing to study and to write things down on paper and then to get up and say them is an entirely different thing. I know, I know these are, these are hot issues right now. Like, I, and I don't just mean like, like, like kind of warm and, and scary, but I mean like, I mean terrifying issues. Like, like we, don't, we don't want to talk about them because we're worried about what's going to happen if we, just, if we say the wrong thing to the, to the right person and, and we just kind of tick everybody off. And so we've not really talked about them. And if you're looking for me to take a stand on these issues, you, if you haven't guessed by now, I'm not taking a stand. Because I want to be, I want to be positioned for mission, not not for some kind of cultural status thing that's happening. Like, I don't, want, I don't want my personal mission of helping people become more like Christ to be sabotaged because I take a political stand on an issue. And I hope that's the same for all of us in this room. And I really hope some people will watch this on Facebook and, and grab it too. Like, we, we, we need to stop sacrificing the mission of the kingdom of God for political stances. We need to stop being so driven by our ideologies and be more driven by the mission of being followers of Jesus Christ. We need to make missional decisions. 
not personal decisions. See, what's happening right now is that, is that a lot of churches are, allowing, are being divided from other churches, right? There's, there's, there's red and blue churches. And, and right now what's happening is, is people are leaving churches, you know, because, well, it's not red enough for me, so I'm going to go find another a church that's more red. A church isn't blue enough for me, so I'm going to go find a church that's more blue. A state isn't red enough for me, so I'm going to go find a state that's more red. A state isn't blue enough for me, so I'm going to go find a state that's more blue. We've had a lot of people move out of Washington this last year by the thousands because they want to find a red state. And no doubt, people are leaving conservative states so they can find more progressive states. Right now, in society at large, relationships are being severed over personal motivations. We're saying goodbye to family as a society because we have a political stance that is so important to us. This is a disaster. This is devastating. This is, this is destroying the world that we live in. We absolutely cannot become a part of that. Right? I mean, well, I've actually heard people say, I just don't have room, uh, room in my life for someone who doesn't agree with me on masks and vaccines. We have believed the lie that we can only be in relationships with people who think exactly like we do. Of course, if that were true, none of us would ever have a relationship. My wife said this yesterday. We were talking to uh, her cousin after the memorial service that we had yesterday. And, and he said, and, and she said, like, if that were true, we couldn't be married. <laughs> like, if, 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 it, if it had to be that you agree on absolutely everything, we wouldn't be married by the way, if it had to be true that we agree on absolutely everything, no church leadership board would be able to exist because on every church leadership board I've ever been a part of, people disagree on deep, deep theological issues. So agreement, absolute agreement and coherence on all ideas is a lie and we don't need to be in agreement on every single idea. In fact, it's healthy for us to disagree with one another. It's healthy for us to talk about things that we don't agree on and it sharpens the way our own understanding and opens our mind to other people's understanding. It's one of the things I really appreciate about Jim is that we don't agree on, on everything on, on some of these issues, but we can talk about it and we can disagree. And when he says things, it, it helps me understand things in a different way and hopefully when I say things, it, it brings a different perspective. It's good to be able to talk with people that you don't agree with and be committed to something that's above that. Unconditional love. If we had to agree on everything, I couldn't be your pastor because I guarantee you we don't agree on everything. If we had to agree on everything, we'd be completely alone. Well, Ohio State Buckeyes sports is something that's entirely different. I mean, like, if you don't root for the Buckeyes, well, that, that's just, I mean, that's like, that's a higher level of understanding, so... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But for a church that's built on grace, we have very little grace. We have very little grace for the people we claim to love as Christ loved us by laying down his life for us in the church. And sadly, right now, it seems like we have even less grace for the people that we don't know who are outside the church. What did Jesus do after his resurrection for Peter. Remember, Peter betrayed Jesus. We just talked about it. After the resurrection, what did Jesus do for Peter? And so he was filled with the Holy Spirit later. And he yeah, so that's, that's later. But what happened right after Jesus' resurrection with Peter? He apologized, or uh, if you look in John chapter 21, verse 15, um, your, your heading probably says, Jesus reinstates Peter. So to, to set the context, what had happened, this was after the resurrection, 
the disciples don't really know where Jesus is. Uh, most of them haven't seen Jesus yet. Peter had not seen Jesus yet. Um, I'm pretty certain of that, that Jesus had not yet seen Peter. And so Peter, uh, you know, the mor you know, uh, morning, uh, I don't know what, what day it was exactly, I think the day after his resurrection, they're out, and, and Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. The sons of thunder, James and John, join him as well as a couple other disciples, and they go out and go fish all night, and they don't catch anything. And then this guy from the shore yells out, throw your net on the other side. And they throw their net on the other side, and they bring in so many fish that they can't even pull in the nets. And then John, the disciple that Jesus loved, that's how it says right there in John chapter 21, the disciple Jesus loved says, it is the Lord. And at this moment, think about Peter, how he, how he must be feeling, how, how he ran to the tomb, and he saw that Jesus wasn't in there, and he believed, and yet, and yet he didn't see Jesus in person, and, and then he had heard about all these other appearances that Jesus had made to Mary and to the disciples, maybe on the road to Emmaus, I don't know when all of this took place, but he had heard about Jesus appearing to all of these people, but Peter had not yet seen Jesus, and then he's out in this boat, and he hears this familiar, this familiar instruction, throw your net on the other side. And John says, it's the Lord. What does he do? He leaps into the water and goes to shore as fast as he can to see Jesus. And they eat a meal. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. One. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Two. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three. One for each time that Peter betrayed Jesus. One for each time that Jesus said that he didn't know him. Jesus gave him an opportunity to set it all straight. By our society's standards, by the way things work in the world today, Jesus would have been perfectly justified to sever ties with Peter for good. And in fact, we would be surprised if Jesus didn't get on Twitter and rant about Peter and how awful of a disciple that he was. Hashtag betrayal. Hashtag never again. Right? That's what we would do in our world. And we say, you're right. You're, you're right to break ties. You're right to give up on that relationship. You never have to go back to that guy. He gave up on you. He betrayed you when you needed him the most. But Jesus not only forgives Peter, but reinstates Peter. Why? Yes, it was in part because he loved Peter unconditionally and he had just given his life for Peter. But what we know from what Shauna had just said, it's also because the mission was more important to Jesus than how Peter's betrayal made Jesus feel. Right? Jesus had already told Peter, you're going to be the rock on which the church is built. Well, the church can't be built on Peter if Jesus doesn't reinstate Peter. So Jesus has to reinstate Peter who had betrayed him when he needed it the most. And yet Jesus overcomes all of that because his motivation for the mission of building the kingdom of God was greater than how Peter's betrayal made him feel. If we can't have friends who think differently than we do about things like masks and vaccines, things like creation and evolution, things like Republican versus Democrat, if we can't have things who think differently than we do, how can we possibly reach people for the kingdom who believe differently than we do about Jesus, God, and everything in between? 
This is the opportunity we're missing right now as the church. Like, we're setting ourselves up as though we're opposed to the people who believe differently than we do, when in fact the case is we need to be reaching into that group and drawing them out of the false beliefs and ideologies. It doesn't matter what political side they're on. It doesn't matter what they think about masks and vaccines. What matters is their eyes are blind to the things of Jesus Christ, and we need to be going into the ocean fishing for men. I'm wrapping up. I know I'm going way too long. I apologize. There's something called the hot-cold empathy gap. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but um, this is a, 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 a psychological neuroscience kind of a thing that I find interesting. Have you ever heard someone's story, someone share a story and think to yourself, if I was ever in that situation, there's no way I'd do that. You ever heard someone say, like, they're telling a story and, and all, you know, they, they find themselves doing something and you say, there's no way I would ever do that, right? And then we all get holier than thou and we judge that person for reacting in such a way, like, why would you, why would you do that? Like, what were you thinking? Why would you make that decision? What's wrong with you? Imagine with me that you're walking down a street at night and a guy steps out of the shadows holding a gun and maybe he's got a few other friends there with him and they've got some weapons, you know, they, like they've got a hockey stick and a baseball bat and like a, a, a creepy bunny or something. And like they're standing there and they come out and they say, give me all your money. How would you respond? Give them the money. <laughs> some of us might give the money. Some might say, well, I would, I'd stand up. I'm not going to let somebody take advantage of me. The truth is, we will all respond differently in the moment than we think we will beforehand. All of us may think we're going to react in one way, but the truth is we'll react differently than we think we will beforehand. And the reason is, when we're afraid, we get a whole rush of chemicals that floods our brain and it makes us act and react differently, right? It makes us do things differently than we think beforehand. Your amygdala takes over and floods your body with adrenaline and other chemicals to help you react differently. But when this happens, these chemicals also force our brain to bypass other more thoughtful, logical, rational processes in our brain. So we don't make decisions that we think we're going to make in advance when we're under this state called hot, right? It's called the hot-cold empathy gap. When we're hot, when we're angry, when we're upset, when we're frustrated, when we're entitled, when we're sad. That's called a hot state. Well, whatever the feeling is, I think our whole society is in a hot state at the moment. I think, I think we're all just kind of by, bypassing all of these logical, rational processes that are supposed to be there because we're just in this hot state fighting for something that we think we need to fight for. So what I think needs to happen is I think we, the church, first need to figure out how to cool down. We need to figure out how to come out of our own hot state and get into a cold state. And then we need to help others out of their hot state and get them into a cold state. And along the way, we need to find a deeper, unconditional grace for people who are in a hot state. Because the truth is, when you're in a hot state, you make decisions you never think that you're going to make. You say things you never think you're going to say. You do things you never think you're going to do because all the rational, logical processes of your brain are being bypassed and you're just active, acting impulsively so we need to find grace for people who are in a hot state. We need to come alongside them with a deep grace. We need to be Jesus' peace in this chaotic world that we live in and help people come down out of the hot state. And we can do this with something as simple as listening and empathizing with someone's point of view. That can go a long way. I think doing things like listening encouraging, recommending people to take a break from social media and the news, offering to spend time with them so that they don't feel 
completely isolated, things like that. In fact, if I were in charge, I would abuse my power and require all media and social media to be shut down for one day a week. I think that would be a great idea. Well, just forever would be the ideal, but you know, I'm being reasonable. All right. Truth is, we've all been given the same mission as Jesus. We've all been called as followers of Jesus Christ to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. The question is, are we going to be like Jesus and be more motivated by mission, or are we going to be personally motivated? What do we do? We need to stop worshiping our idols. I'll get into that in other weeks. I'm not going to get into that today. We need to be the presence of Jesus. And that means being peace. That's right. That's what, that's what the Holy Spirit is supposed to come. It's supposed to bring peace and comfort. And we're, we're filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, so we should be Jesus' peace in the midst of all the turmoil. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Children of God are peacemakers. James, uh, Jesus said also in the book of James, peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. I think that was Jesus, I'm not sure. We need to be peaceful. We need to be ministers of reconciliation. We need to be actively working to reconcile relationships that have been broken as a result of the past year. Maybe it's in our own life. Maybe it's in the lives of people that we know. But we need to be working to reconcile relationships. We need to be ridiculously gracious with one another. We need to be ridiculously gracious with other Christians, other believers. We need to be ridiculously gracious with people outside the church. And we need to be ridiculously gracious with ourselves. Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though my, I myself am not under the law. I became like one under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. But I became like one not under the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Become all things to all people. That might mean becoming something that you're not comfortable becoming might mean we need to become something that's a little bit outside of our comfort zone. But if it's for the sake of the mission of Jesus and, and bringing someone out of the darkness and into the light, it's worth it. When we have conversations with other Christians who are frustrated that their church is requiring masks, how can we encourage them to stick it out? When we have conversations with other Christians who are frustrated that their church isn't requiring masks, how can we encourage them to stick it out? When we have conversations with other Christians who, who are putting their, their personal pandemic preferences ahead of their unity with the church or their personal fulfillment of the mission, how can we graciously encourage people to reprioritize the gospel in this season? Imagine with me, if you will, what could happen if we started being this kind of a church. If we started being gracious, peacemaking agents of change in our hot society. What could that be? What could that look like? What would happen if we started being ridiculously gracious with one another and others in our lives? What would happen if we started showing ridiculous mercy to the people who have wounded and offended us? What would happen if we sought to be a movement of peacemaking and resolution makers, reconciliation makers in a society that's at war? I think we have a huge opportunity all around us to make a difference for the kingdom of God. The question is, will we lay aside our personal motivations to be motivated by the mission that we've been called to? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that in the moment when it mattered the most, when Jesus was tempted to lay down the mission he was sent here to accomplish, to lay that aside for his own desires that he chose not to, that though it would cost him 
so much personally. It cost him everything to go to the cross. He still chose to lay his life down. Help us, Father, to become more like Christ in that way. Help me to become more like Christ in that way. Help me to, to lay down any, any personal ambition, any personal motivation that drives me and to pick up the mantle of the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be people who, who not only live that way, but, but find ways to encourage other believers to live that kind of a reconciling life, peaceful life. Father, help us to, to catch ourselves when we're saying something that's going to be intentionally offensive or divisive, when we're, when we're doing something that, we're, that we know is going to upset somebody and we're doing it just because we agree with that, I pray, Father, you help us to catch, those, catch us in those moments and, and to not do those things and instead to find opportunities to bring together and draw together. Any area of our life, that anything in our life that's become more important to us than you, I pray, Father, that you'd help us to see that and from this moment forward to find our strength in Christ alone and nothing else. Father, help us to be crazy gracious. Help us to be gracious with one another. Help us to be gracious with other Christians. Help us to be gracious with people that we vehemently disagree with on one topic or another. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be kind. Help us to be merciful. Father, fill us with the Holy Spirit that the fruit of the Spirit might overflow out of our lives, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control would become attributes that just naturally flow out of who we are. And I pray, Father, help us to set aside anything that we're clinging to that isn't you. And may we pick you up and carry your cross. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah,